There's a scene in Spaceballs, the movie, where I think his name is Colonel Sanders, the underling of Dark Helmet, is like, hey, Dark Helmet, do you want to watch Spaceballs, the movie? And Dark Helmet's like, what do you mean? We're still in the middle of making it. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's this new video technology where now you know, you can see the movie before it's finished. Uh, that's kind of how I feel this week. I'm giving you guys this intro. I'm recording it while uh, Charlie's busy hosting the show for the first time doing his solo hosting uh, because I couldn't make it on. I'm traveling. The Wi-Fi is really bad. It's not bad enough. I can't do an intro, but it is bad enough for me to get on a platform with, you know, three or four other people and try to have a conversation. So, uh, so Charlie's uh, flying solo this week. So I have no idea how it's going, but it's going on right now while I'm recording this. So uh, I feel a little bit like a dark helmet in space balls. That's the overall point I was trying to make. Uh, so anyway, we'll see how, how it goes with Charlie. I'll be interested to listen to it as I'm sure you guys will. Uh, Charlie's guests this week are Kevin Wilson and Greg Drobny. Kevin Wilson is getting dangerously close to getting the gold jacket. I think this is his third, maybe fourth time. No, maybe third time. I can't remember third or fourth time back on the show, which I think is, uh, puts him in the lead of our most recurring guest. So, uh, so yeah, I'm sorry. I'll miss it. And I'm sorry. Uh, I won't be able to ask all the deep probing questions I was planning on asking, but it'd be fun to hear what Charlie comes up with. Again, the subject this week is what do guns mean to you? It is a gun heavy episode, or at least that was the plan. We'll see what actually happens, but that was the plan that we were going with. So uh, let's go take a listen. Looking forward to it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Okay, so today we're going to talk about gun stuff, which is something the three of us have talked about at length for, I mean, many years, even though this is the first time we've seen each other in person. Thanks, COVID. So uh, different perspectives on this. It's it's going to be really interesting to hear what all three of us have to say on it, because I know from our, our interactions on the Havoc Journal and our Writers Forum that the three of us have a lot of similar beliefs about guns, but they do diverge in certain areas. I think that'll make for an interesting podcast today. So let's go ahead and, and jump on in it. We're going to talk about guns. We're talking about perspective on guns. We're going to talk about gun control. And of course, Second Amendment is going to be prevalent in this discussion. And Greg, I thought we'd start with you first, uh, because your perspective on guns is, is very nuanced and interesting. And I think that uh, we'll start off with that. And then Kevin and I will come in um, as necessary over the course of it. So, Greg, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question, kind of to set the tone, and we'll take this however it goes. So, as an American, as someone who's who's been uh, very vocal about guns and gun rights, what are your general perspective? What's your general perspective on the Second Amendment and the uh, ownership and, and use of firearms in the United States? Sure. So, I mean, I think we could start by just saying, you know, guns are terrifying and they kill people. So that's scary, right? <laughs> but, but seriously, to you know, to to put that in perspective, of just saying, you know, what what guns, what they're intended for, and I think a lot of a uh, lot of the debate on a lot of these issues has gotten muddied by getting worried about, well, are they good for sporting or hunting or whatever? Well, let's let's go back to what they were originally intended for and address it 
at the core, right? Which is as a defensive purpose, it's a weapon. It, it's designed as a weapon. And that's what its original intent was for. And that's why I think that it was it was included in the in the Constitution to begin with as a as a weapon of war. I mean, it's that's why it's there. Let's not dance around that. Let's hit it where it is and, and say that it is a weapon of war. And that's why it's in the Constitution. It wasn't there for so that farmers could hunt or you know shoot coyotes on their land. Sure, that's a great benefit, but that's that's secondary to what it was originally there for. And really, at, at the heart of uh, when we look at the constitutional aspect of it, I think one of the biggest things to look at is, is it addressed consistently with the other things we consider rights? Uh, and in that way, uh, no. You know, the answer is no, it's not addressed consistently. Because if we look at the, the concept of rights, of natural rights, and the right to defend oneself, and if we put that along with concepts like the right to worship in the faith that we choose or in the you know the freedom of speech and things like that it it's not really viewed consistently along with those principles so we've definitely gone sideways from original intent when when it comes to the constitutional matters but i think that's that's almost a moot point when we ask the question does that matter you know do we still have to deal with what is right now and and what are we doing with laws right now and what's the reality of all of that and so at, at core i guess the, the short version of the answer is i do like to understand a constitutional perspective but i'm also very realistic about where we are now and how we address that in our current reality and not just pining for the past in some mythical thing that that we're never going to get back anyway what a great way to start off the show, Greg. Appreciate your insights on that. So, Kevin, any reaction to what Greg just said? How is your own philosophy on it the same or different? Um, I've kind of gotten more hardline on this over the years. I personally think the ATF should be a convenience store chain. Um, so, specifically what you said in regards to how the Second Amendment is treated compared to other rights. There's been a lot of movement on that, especially coming out of the Ninth Circuit. We've got several cases that are actually coming up to the Supreme Court, but one of the things they're specifically doing is using a process called tiered scrutiny. So you have exacting scrutiny, which is the highest standard constitution. Ninth Circuit and a lot of these other, call them more anti-gun uh, uh, district courts, have been using intermediate scrutiny, which basically balances Basically, the state has to prove a specific need in order for it to pass muster. So, with that regard, the Second Amendment is one of the only things, one of the only core fundamental rights that's treated with intermediate scrutiny as opposed to exacting scrutiny. But there is another case coming up in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, it's like the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus the state of New York talking about their concealed carry program, which New York has may issue which basically means you have to prove that you have some significant need to own a fire or to carry a firearm concealed above and beyond what the average person has. That's what's getting challenged. So we could see potential changes in that direction because tiered scrutiny might be under review and the May issue system might be under review. So this is a big one to watch for anyone who gives a damn about guns. Kevin, I'm glad you brought up the New York concealed carry issue. So as both of you know, I live in New York now. This is actually my seventh year of living here, two different 
tours the army sent me here there's a lot to like about new york especially where i live right now but one of the things i don't like are the ridiculous gun laws so while i'm living on a military installation uh we're subject to federal gun laws which are more in line with with what i think all gun laws should be but if i want to take my legally owned weapons off off post to go to a range or something like that, they have to be registered. I have to have a permit if I want to carry them, et cetera. And when I was here last time, I did try to go through the permitting process. And not only is it very expensive to do so, it is extraordinarily intrusive and cumbersome. A police officer came to my house. Um, they wanted letters of recommendation from three three people who know me, et cetera, which I considered a, a pretty heinous invasion of my privacy. It's, no, it's nobody's business but mine if I want to own a pistol and carry it. And the permitting process is between me and the state, not between me and, and three people who are willing to vouch for me. So I ended up stopped doing it. I stopped the process. We moved to Hawaii. Um, and now I kind of regret it because I'm back here in New York and I don't have a permit and I can't, I can't legally uh, carry my guns off post. So I do hope they change it. And I hope that they, ultimately what we get away from is this patchwork of laws across the country that that really kind of impedes the the lawful uh, carry of, of firearms and lawful gun owners and get to something that's a little more consistent between each one of them. So, Greg, what do you what are your uh, what's your experience with firearms? Did you have guns growing up? Oh yeah, absolutely. I grew up in house of you know learning to shoot when I was very young, and uh, that was a continued thing through young adulthood. Started shooting three gun matches back in uh, the early nineties. Back when it was not a popular thing, even with the NRA, the NRA was not pro assault weapon at that time, as we, you know, as the term has become Um, shot in, in uh, some three gun matches, then ended up joining the army later uh, as an old guy. And then (laughs) at the the ripe old age of 28, joined the army, of course, shooting there and then ended up after I left the army in 2009, I actually ended up in the world of Second Amendment politics. So uh, had an extensive kind of on the job training regarding the realities of Second Amendment politics and not just the ideals. You know, that, that was a big education for me of. Yes, we might have this ideal of what it should be, but then you get into the reality of how politics actually works on the ground, and it's it's a bit different, uh, and and you have to come to grips with that and how that all works out. So, and, and then I ended up working in the in a shooting, very large shooting range here in Colorado, uh, working in safety and all kinds of things like that. So I've worked in instruction, concealed carry classes, yeah, range safety, and politics, and all of the above. So based on all those experiences, Greg, who do you think should be able to own a gun in the con- in, in our country? Well, I mean, I, it's hard to base it on those experiences because I see I see the full range of individual ability and, and competency, you know, and I, I think it's we're very prone as people in general to look at what we see in our immediate surroundings and say, well, everything should be based on what I see. Uh, well, I can tell you I've seen some terrifying things on public ranges where it makes me think that maybe maybe not everybody should own a gun, right? And that, that's it's a scary thing to see that. But then at the same time, when you look at the reality of implementing something that says, you know, well, you have to pass this kind of proficiency to be able to own a firearm, well, then I would encourage anybody who thinks that way to just go to the DMV. 
you know, go hang out at the DMV for a while and tell me that that's a valid method of, of you know, just <laughs> of defining what is proficient and what is not, because that's what you end up with. And exactly what you're talking about in New York, people coming to your home and asking you questions and this, this, that, and the other. So, you know, when you get down to the, to the reality of it, yes, I think, you know, everybody should, because if you look at it as a right, if it is in fact a natural right, then it's really hard to say that anybody shouldn't without some kind of very obvious mechanism that says no, you know, and that's, that's tough to define, but at the same time, are we doing that with religion? Are we doing that with speech? Are we doing that with due process? No, we're not. There isn't an ATF for religion. Uh, so, you know, this prompts the question of why do we have it for firearms? It's a great question. We probably do a whole show just on that. And I think both <laughs> both you and Kev have, have some pretty strong feelings about it. So, Kevin, same question, to, same question to you. What was your experience like with firearms as you as you were growing up? So, I didn't have many guns growing up. Uh, I had a BB gun, which promptly ended up being discharged from my older brother's ass cheek. He had that one coming. Um, I didn't own any guns of my own until after I moved out. And, uh, you know, obviously did the whole uh, Army National Guard thing. Um, for a while, I was collecting antique rifles because I like those, but kids are expensive. So now I don't have any of my old Lee Enfields. Um, over the last couple of years, I've got into... Uh, basically volunteering with uh, local gun groups. Um, I've started building my own, helping other people build. I'm getting into 3D printing with it, which there's a lot of stuff you can do with that. I kind of like it. Um, I think that's the relevant bits. <laughs> All right. So in terms of who should own a firearm, do you have uh, a perspective that's, in, that's much different than Greg's about that? Um, I think I can more clearly delineate where I would say I don't want people to own guns, and that would be violent felons. If you're a violent felon, or I kind of don't mind the Lautenberg Amendment, where if you've been convicted of any domestic abuse, no gun for you. Everyone else, have at it. Like, one of the, uh, I've sort of kind of gotten drawn into the really weird world of leftist gun owners, mostly thanks to my siblings. I don't agree with them on most things politically, but there's a very narrow uh, section of the American political spectrum that's like, guns are bad. The further left you go, the more they get back to, guns are actually pretty cool. So, and there's a very valid argument to be made from that perspective that, you know, guns are one of the greatest defenses of uh, minority communities, period. Like, when you look at all of our gun control laws, most of them taken at a macro level are extremely discriminatory against people who come from lower income backgrounds and people who might have gotten tr in trouble in their youth because they lived in these bad situations and now they're growing up and finally can't legally defend themselves. So it, can I jump in here just for a second? Please do, Tom? Greg. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll can, Kevin mentioned uh, the Lautenberg Amendment, and I think that's a perfect example of what I was mentioning earlier about the reality of how things are implemented versus the, the ideal. Uh, so with the Lautenberg Amendment, we have something that sounds really good on the surface, and I would agree with Kevin in principle. So the idea that a, a someone who is a domestic violence abuser 
probably shouldn't uh, own firearms, right? That sounds good, and I would agree with that in principle. However, that's not how it works. And this is where we get into some really difficult problems with these laws. And the Lautenberg Amendment is a perfect example because it actually subverts the due process. So if you are, let's say Kevin's wife calls the police and accuses him, not, not convicted, then this language is important, accuses him of domestic violence, that Lautenberg Amendment is invoked, he loses everything. So his rights are gone. Until he goes to court and proves beyond a shadow of doubt that no, he was not guilty and he's found innocent in a court of law, those rights are gone. He loses his firearms. He loses the ability to possess firearms. He loses a concealed carry permit. All of that is gone based on an accusation. And this is where, again, it's the, it's the reality of how these things are implemented that scares me as much as the reality of, of what we're talking about. Ideally, Kevin's right. You know, the, the idea that somebody who's convicted of beating their wife up probably shouldn't own a firearm. No disagreement. That's not how these laws work, and they, they get abused heavily. So it calls into question our, our implementation system and whether or not we could actually even implement that on a real, like a reality-based level. So, uh, Greg, I, is the Lautenberg Amendment a little bit like a, uh, is that a, similar to a red flag law? Is it, is it the same it is. concept there? It is, except it's it's been in place for a very long time, and it's it doesn't ever get pushback for the exact reason that Kevin already brought up. It sounds really good. It sounds like a great law. The problem is, it subverts the do the whole due process method. Kevin yeah. was going to jump in and, and beat me. Yeah, up sorry here, about so that, I wanna, Kevin. Go I want to let him. I want to let him do so. <laughs> no, I was just going to say I completely agree. The potential for abuse there is tremendous, and. I know people who have had to go through that process. The flip side is we don't have a better alternative at this time. Now, again, it's a very complicated, well, I say complicated, I'm not trying to imply that the listener is stupid. It's a complex subject and there's a lot to be said for both sides of it. I come down on the side of caution in this one particular case because I also know people who have been abused who haven't been able to get out of that situation. So I recognize that this is a bit of a, uh, like, I can easily see both sides of it, and I agree, the system has been abused. It's not perfect. It's not even really good. But in that one particular case, it's what we got, and I would love to see so, something better in place. So, the and here's my, I guess my issue with this is, in principle, the way it works, and this the this example I'm using doesn't necessarily happen as often as the, the preliminary, but it, it can happen. So let's say you have a woman who accuses a man of uh, domestic violence. Again, the Lautenberg Amendment means his concealed carry permit goes away, his ability to own firearms goes away until he's proven innocent. If he were a very nefarious fellow and were to reverse that and accuse his wife of domestic violence, as per the law, she would also lose that ability, which means in a, in a true violent situation, like he's going after her, she now loses the legal ability to possess a firearm to protect herself from that aggressive, abusive husband. So, and this is where, again, it's like, are we causing more problems with the laws that we're trying to use to, to solve the problem, which is an inherent problem with law to begin with. Uh, 
And, and that's where I, I would argue is, is my biggest problem with a lot of the gun control laws in existence today. Are they actually effective at doing what they say they're doing? And in most cases, the answer is no. The answer is absolutely no. <laughs> right. Right, because some of the pl- some of the places with the highest gun control have the highest crime. I think that's a very, very common thing that we all know, right, Greg? Absolutely, and, it, and we can we can even look at that by you know we can look at it by city city by city. And one of the problems we face in America today, on any number of levels, this goes well beyond gun control. Is are we really going to say that New York City, you know, near where you are, is really deserving of the same set of laws and principles as is Fairbanks, Alaska, or Boise, Idaho, or Casper, Wyoming. You know, I have a hard time believing that those should be exactly the same, but, you know, I I don't know what the answer to that is. But again, it's the implementation that it ends up, it ends up having counter effects and doesn't even work in most of the cases. And it's very interesting here, one of the nuances of the gun laws in New York State, even when I do eventually get my concealed carry permit, it's not good in New York City. So I can carry everywhere in, in New York State except New York City. And frankly, New York City is probably the place I'd want one the most. But being a law-abiding citizen, I, I won't do that. So that you have very interesting right. gun laws in the country. So when we're when we're looking at some of the reasons people offer for not supporting gun rights. I think we've heard many of them before. Kevin and Greg have mentioned one of them earlier. Guns are, are only should only be for hunting. Why do you need to own a, an assault rifle? Um, the Second Amendment only applies to muskets. Uh, Greg, let's start with you on, on this. When you hear those types of arguments, uh, what are your thoughts and what are your responses? I mean, I I think the biggest one is that it fundamentally misunderstands the concept of natural rights. And that's where we see, I I believe, the biggest – and I'm going to throw a caveat in here to to mess with everybody who's listening and participating. Um, I think that's where we see the biggest disconnect in these types of discussions is are we applying the concept of natural rights consistently? And again, if we look at how we look at – uh, religious faith or due process, you know, these concepts that we seem to be on board with mostly as a society, then suddenly we shift over to guns and it's it's a completely different view. So, and here comes the caveat. This prompts the serious question though of does it matter? Like, yes, we can say that nobody is appreciative of, or understanding of the concept of natural rights, but does that change anything? Do it? Do we suddenly, you know, if me saying that and me trying to educate people on natural rights, does it actually have an impact? And will people start applying it consistently once they understand what natural rights are? I don't know that it will. Uh, we might be so far down the path of being divorced from that understanding that it may not matter. So, and I and appreciate, you know, I, I'm more than happy to be corrected on that. But I, I, again, this is an area where we can say it all we want. I can say, well, here's what natural rights are, and it's a complicated subject, but does it matter? That's a great question, and that's one I don't have an answer for. Kevin, do you, do you have uh, any thoughts on what Greg just said, or do you want to talk about some of the anti-gun arguments that you've heard in the past? Well, to address what Greg said, the concept of natural rights hasn't really applied since the uh, FDR administration. 
that's or really Wilson, where we can see it. Well, Wilson, yeah, but FDR basically decided, I want to be king. And set Put, about... Push the throttle down on that. <laughs> yeah. Set about going and did a lot of really skeevy New York authoritarian stuff in that regard. But uh, one of the... Uh, I mean, I know it's a little bit trite, but when someone says that, oh, the Second Amendment doesn't apply to modern firearms, like, okay, write that down on a piece of parchment and send it to me by a guy on horseback so I may reply in due term. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's, yes, it's Mimi, yes, it's, but the same principle applies. Technology changes, our fundamental rights do not. Like, you know, I made this, well, I bought the parts for it, but I put it together. You know, fundamentally, that's not any different from a guy back in the 1800s, you know, getting the parts to make himself a musket so he can defend his family or so he can muster for the local militia. You know, we have these rights. I made this, and for those of you can't can't see, it's a 3D print printed model of a Glock 22. I uh, give these out to local concealed carry instructors so they can have something to demonstrate to the class. I can take the same 3D printing technology and make an actual gun. Printer's not there yet. I'm working on that. It's coming in the future. I'll try to do a write-up about it. But uh, technology does not change the way that rights should and could be interpreted. But for whatever reason, new equals scary for a lot of people, and especially the anti-gun side, they've been hammering on the application of new technologies to know the firearm industry. Well, and I think it's worth adding on there too, that because of the, the because of who's on this panel right here, who's on this call and who most likely the Havoc Journal listeners are, you know, to to address a point that I think I hear get danced around a little bit, but I think is worth covering head on. Like you said, fundamental rights don't change, and the intent of the Second Amendment really had nothing to do with hunting or necessarily even just home defense, right? It, it had to do with this concept of tyrannous government and the ability to muster a militia, right? Well, we see the in a common anti-gun argument of today is, well, you know, unless you're ready to take on F-15s and, and things, you know, it's certain certain presidential figures may have said certain things along these lines. Um, Thanks, Biden. You know, the, <laughs> you're, you know, unless you're willing to do that, then then your your AR-15 is meaningless. But I think this is important to bring up here with this group and with the Havoc Journal listeners is, okay, we all know how long a small indigenous uh, guerrilla army can tie up a very large one uh, and has done it many times in the past and how much of a fight a small group of well-trained people can put up even against a very large, formidable occupying force. So the idea that the the argument is null and void simply because of technological advancements of of a large governing body is ridiculous. It doesn't hold water for those of us who have seen firsthand what small groups of people can accomplish when determined and well-trained. So so I think that's worth just addressing head-on instead of dancing around it and saying, you know, we don't want to go down that road. I'm not advocating for a small group of people to do anything of the sort. So, you know, full disclosure here, by no means am I advocating for that right now. 
What I'm saying is to, to discount it as a possibility just because of technological abilities is, is very short-sighted. I would posit that Jimbo and Leroy with a case of Bud Light between them are far more dangerous than anything we've encountered in the Middle East, Vietnam, so on and so forth. <laughs> but To themselves or someone else, Kev? Yes. <laughs> but furthering to down the that. truck, especially. Yeah. <laughs> I swear to God, if I see one more squatted truck. Anyway, but further down that line, it also assumes the complete and total cooperation of the U.S. military in engaging in actions on U.S. soil against American citizens, which I don't think is a given. But that's, we can argue about that for hours. Well, right. So I, I think you bring up one of the most frustrating arguments that people make about guns and that you can't fight the government with with your weapons. And, uh, I think, as you said, Greg, any of us who've actually experienced that know it's not true. Several of our enemies and we've all served against them do quite well against a, a large force because they're determined and they have the means and the will to fight back. And I think that's what the second amendment was all about. And when it comes to militia, I, I've heard another one and Kevin, you might be the one to ask this question about, when someone tells you that the militia referred to in the Second Amendment is the National Guard, do you do you have any thoughts about that? The concept of the National Guard did not exist until the early 1900s. So, essentially what it serves, the National Guard serves as a state military. It can be federalized, and indeed the federal government does pay for all our shiny new toys. Like I was in a high Mars battalion, uh, high mobility artillery rocket system, push button, go boom. Um... The federal government paid for our shiny new toys, which we promptly tore to shit and then took to Syria and blew other people up. But they are still owned by the state of North Carolina. We are paid and funded by the state of North Carolina. The state of North Carolina, well, I say we, I'm out of it now because joint problems and all that sort of fun stuff. At any rate, this is a fairly new concept. The original idea of the militia was supposed to be every able-bodied man in a certain area was to muster once a month, bring their, uh, bring their personal weapon, show up, train drill for Napoleonic-style warfare. Because at the time, that was basically the only game in town. Uh, on a large scale, there was some experimentation with asymmetric warfare in the Revolution, French and Indian War. Uh, the actions in, in and around Texas and Mexico in the 1840s, so on and so forth. But the point is, that's not what the National Guard, that's not the role they fill traditionally. That's not, I don't think, uh, militia within the scope of the Constitution applies to the National Guard. It's basically just a pocket military under the state, under control of the governor. So, Greg, I see you nodding along. Do you have something else to add to this discussion? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Kevin is spot on. I think there are certain aspects of the National Guard currently that negate that very idea. And the fact that it can be federalized automatically negates it. I mean, it, it does. The fact that the, the federal government routinely federalizes the National Guard, you know, a state level National Guard to do things over in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan really dismantles the whole argument that the National Guard is taking place of that local militia. Uh, you know, that tears it apart. But you can go even deeper and say even the verbiage of the Second Amendment itself 
is misapplied with that argument. That the the whole terminology "well regulated" has had as much to do with the person as it did with the concept of a group. This idea that you know it, it suddenly means a group that is regulated. No, it, it had as much to do with does Kevin have his gear in order? So if I place a call over to Kevin and say, "Hey, is your stuff good to go?" That's the concept of well-regulated. Does, does he have a rifle? Does he see? He's checking his stuff right now, and he's he's all set. He's ready. Shooter ready. Stand by. That's what you know. That it had as much to do with that as it did anything else. Not just a group being regulated. It had to do with your gear. Is your gear in order? And are you ready to serve? Because it was expected. Little little known little known fact to a lot of people. One of the unused unused legal precedents for uh, Obamacare that one of the and it sounds like a diversion but I promise it has a point one of the uh, the arguments against Obamacare at first was this idea of the federal government compelling the individual to purchase something like purchase an actual product and we can have that discussion but there is a legal precedence for it and that is none other than George Washington signing an executive order for all able-bodied men, like Kevin said, to own a musket, to actually own a firearm. So he actually wrote an executive order that basically said anybody between the age of 17 and 40 was supposed to buy and own their own musket. This was an actual executive order issued by George Washington. And, and it's, so the idea, in other words, the idea that it was just a state-controlled thing, that it wasn't an individual is anathema to the whole concept of, of what they were dealing with at the time. But to further Kevin's point, none of this, none of this was in question until the 20th century. There was never any talk of federal level regulations of firearms until the 20th century. None of this was in question. So everybody was on the same page with, yes, this is an individual thing. Yes, you know, you can own a military style weapon. Yes, it's for you as an individual. All everyone was on the same page until the 20th century, and even then, it was it took some time to develop some of those arguments. Well, and another thing worth noting here is that words have a tendency of changing and shifting definitions. Regulated in this sense does not mean we have a bunch of rules. Regulated means more along the lines of well regulated, well disciplined. Do they train? Do they drill? Do they practice? Yes, yes, right. capable of training? performing their function. Absolutely. Yes. That's right. That's right. Well, <clears throat> Greg, back to you for this one. What would you tell someone who is thinking about buying a gun? Someone not familiar with firearms, thinking about owning a gun for whatever reason. What, what are some things you would counsel them on or talk to them about? So I think that, you know, we live in a, an amazing age of information technology and, and having access to just wide range of of data knowledge at our fingertips, right? We can we can search for whatever we want and find find things. But for some reason people still don't. Um, so what I would tell people is is really, uh, and I think this applies to just about every area of interest, find people who know what they're talking about and learn from them first. Uh, that's a hard thing to do when you don't you know you don't know anything, so it seems like everybody else knows more than you. But one of the things that has served me well in life is to find out whatever discipline I get involved in, I ask who are the best people in the world at this thing. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's martial arts or shooting or music or any of the other interests that I have. I ask who are the best people in the world. 
why do they do what they do? Like, how do they practice? How do they train? You know, what, what do they do? And I say this in relation to guns because you need to go seek out people who are really good at this. And whether you start on the internet or not, that's, it doesn't really matter. Seek out people who are highly accomplished and ask them, ask them to guide you and have somebody who's willing to work with you on this process. Don't just Google things like what's the best gun for me. Uh, because you're going to get, as you guys know, you're going to wade into some arguments that are more heated than Republican versus Democrat. I mean, good heavens, you know, get a get a Glock versus 1911 argument. 1911. You're going <laughs> to see a civil war start to brew. Um, so, you know, find find people that actually know what they're talking about and seek, you know, seek some kind of relationship with them so that they can kind of guide you on that process rather than just seeking a definitive answer. Uh, I'm always hesitant to give people any, any kind of solid answer for you know, what kind of gun you should buy or what. There's so many questions that have to preclude that. You know, what are you using it for? How big are you? you know, Kevin's a big guy, you're a big guy. You might be able to handle something that's very different than what the five foot two female can handle. So I'm not gonna recommend the same thing to you that I would to them. So you know, all of these questions have to come first, but that really only works in the, in the concept of relationship with somebody who, who knows what they're talking about and is willing to work with you. Kevin, same question for you. What would be your advice to someone who's not familiar with firearms thinking about buying their first gun? What he said. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Like what I tell people, because I've worked with a lot of a, a lot of first-time gun owners, a lot of new shooters over the last couple of years, find something that fits you. I am a Sasquatch. My carry gun is a Glock 40 MOS in 10 millimeter because I am huge. The gun is huge. It's comfortable for me. And also because 10 millimeter can actually be found on the shelf now, whereas 45 and nine, mil nine millimeters still non-existent. Unobtainium, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one wants these spicy boys. But, uh, <laughs> they're so loud. It's because they're so loud. <laughs> well, I mean, it also, like, this is a 185 grain bullet going at near as not... Jesus, I don't remember the exact... 15, 16 feet per second? Yeah, it's got something like uh, 700 foot-pounds of energy on impact. Yeah, yeah, you try exactly. and hand this to, if I tried to hand this to my wife so she could shoot it, it would knock her on her ass. She's five foot three, weighs maybe 110 pounds soaking wet. Yeah. For, uh, the answer of the perfect gun for any individual person is going to vary wildly depending upon their experience, their stature, the size of their hands, how flinchy they are when it comes to loud noises. So get out there, do your research. You know, I will say if all else fails, just look for a Glock that fits in your hand. It may not be the best gun, but it'll work. Um, most of the time, shut up. I can see that look. <laughs> so Kevin, what, what do you think about gun buybacks as, uh, the, the, as, as, as a useful thing? Do you think they're good for getting guns off the street. I don't think any of us are in law enforcement right now, but just as kind of lay people, what are your thoughts about gun I think it's a really good way to get some rid of some old junk you have in your garage. It's actual crime preventing uh, ability is zero. I saw a thing where a guy literally using spare parts he had in his garage, not gun parts, like a piece of pipe and a two by four and some cable ties 
put together a zip gun and got $200 from it from the local police department because it demonstrated that it worked. Wow. <laughs> that's like, a good return on investment. That's actually yeah, genius. Like, I wouldn't have thought of that. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. I mean, well, it's <laughs> like, I, I get the logic behind these programs insofar as it exists. Guns are scary. If we can give people money to get them off the street, that's fine. But the amount they're offering for these things, for starters, is insultingly low. I've got, don't tell my wife, I've got like two grand and an AR on the shelf over there. I've got <laughs> quite a lot in this pistol. I've got more in this little hunk of plastic than they're offering for most buyback programs. I'll go, I'll so go one step further, and I found out about this because I worked in the in the gun industry, and, and there was this story was circulating. There was a city that did a gun buyback program, and they offered a little bit more than that. It was something like $300-ish. Wow. So somebody figured out that High Points retailed for less than that, and they were literally <laughs> buying them off the shelf. So saving the whole process of making in your garage, like here it is, so cut out the labor – and literally just buying from the store new and walking over to the police department. And, you know, so it's just like a direct sale, which was, again, genius. But uh, and even if you make 50, 60 bucks per gun, you still made 50, 60 bucks. That's yeah, right. and you, plus, you got a, plus you got a story to tell. Right. Yeah, and it's a, it makes a great point. story. I'm not even going to fact check that story because I want it to be true. I'm, no, I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. I, just, I want it to be true. So. Well, again, in my, then, in my then younger days, to... I... Go ahead, Kev. Then you have to have people know that even for a little bit, you owned a high point. <laughs> I, I was just about to comment in my younger years, I, I owned a high point before I realized what garbage guns they, they really are. But yeah, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to high point shame anyone because I own one myself. OK, so, Greg, what changes or what what would you like to see in terms of gun laws in the country just a broad question it could be as focused or, or as generalized as you think uh you, you think appropriate what kind of changes to gun laws would you like to see Ooh, to gun laws i mean that, that's that's a big question because i as we discussed earlier i think most of them are just ineffective what, what they do um you know if i had if I had my, you know, king for a day thing and you say one one declaration, I honestly, and this this may shock people, but I say it anyway, I would get rid of the ATF. Uh, I wouldn't get rid of a law. I would get rid of a agency. Uh, that agency itself does not need to exist. It shouldn't exist. And it is ineffective at existing. Um, I don't believe that it, it should exist in terms of how our government oper operates. And if you talk to any local police that have ever worked with the ATF, they will tell you that they're not even effective at what they do. I, I know a number of cops because I, I, of where I worked, I know a lot of people in law enforcement. I have yet to meet a single law enforcement officer who has worked with the ATF who said, oh yeah, they're great. Yeah, it's never happened. I, maybe they're out there, I've, but I've never met one. And I've worked doing contracting and working in the firearms industry. I've known a lot of police officers all of them have said the same thing, that this organization is completely ineffective at doing what it's supposed to do anyway. And then when you look at it from a philosophical perspective, I don't really think they should exist to begin with. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I would get rid of any specific law. 
Um, what I would rather see is just a, an approach, a different approach to how we look at this and, and some type of consistency. But then again, we get into politics in general and there's not a lot of consistency there anyway. So <laughs> great answer, Greg. And Kevin, for you, what would you like to see different or changed or added or removed? I'd like to see the NFA and GCA struck down as unconstitutional. I'd like to see the ATF turn into a licensed convenience store branch or brand. And I would like to see these, there are causes of gun violence, the pro primarily socioeconomic. If we address these issues from the bottom up as opposed to trying to solve them from the top down, I think we'll see a tremendous amount of improvement. Excellent. Very nuanced approaches on both of those. Go ahead, Greg. One, fo one follow-up thought on what Kevin said. He, he mentioned the NFA and something I would point people to that I think is a fascinating argument. Uh, the NFA was the, – the ch first challenge to the NFA was U.S. v. Miller, and it was a uh, couple of brothers who were bootleggers, and they were caught with a sawed-off shotgun, okay? And the, and the argument was that they're not allowed to have this. It went to the Supreme Court, and the argument was, well, he should be allowed to have it because soldiers used it in the trenches of World War I, right? And the idea was – if it's a, a common usage weapon in the trenches by a soldier, it should be allowed to be owned by an individual. This was the argument put forth. All evidence suggests that it actually would have worked as an argument. Miller didn't show up for court. He vanished. He disappeared. And so that case basically stood as, as being valid of him being convicted of this because he didn't show up. Research U.S. v. Miller, and it's a fascinating story of where some of our gun laws went very sideways simply because he had a solid argument. There was, There's evidence that Supreme Court justices were on the side of that argument and recognizing that as saying, yes, if a soldier can use it in on the field of battle as a common usage weapon, then an individual American should be able to own it. The case never proceeded because, again, the guy went AWOL from the case. Well, the common usage clause also pops up in 2008's DC versus Heller, Heller versus DC, forget the order. But anyway, uh, one yes. of the things that it maintains is the firearms that are commonly owned for lawful purposes are protected under the Second Amendment. That's where one of the current challenges sitting in the Ninth Circuit's uh, current challenges to California's assault weapons ban is their magazine ban is actually facing a more interesting challenge under the takings clause, and particularly whether or not the law goes against that. But you know, that's a whole other thing. But the common use uh, verbiage still exists in this, uh, I guess, one of the more interesting uh, challenges to a lot of these more uh, strict gun laws. Kevin, that reminds me of, of an interesting law they had here in New York shortly after the tragedy of Sandy Hook with regard to magazine capacity. So New York just kind of arbitrarily decided that you could have a 10-round magazine, but you can only put seven rounds in it. It was bizarre. I was like, I mean, I own a 1911 anyway, so it's kind of moot for me. My, my standard magazine holds seven. But it just seemed completely arbitrary and capricious, and it, it was just kind of another example of people who don't know much about guns trying to make gun laws. So that's just a, another example of that. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah. God, I could go on for hours about New York gun laws. <laughs> I visit NYC once, maybe twice a year, and it's always such a headache because 
I mean, this is 15 rounds of fuck you. Legally, I'm not allowed to have it. Legally. <laughs> in, in New York? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would... I mean, everything that you've shown on the show so far would probably get you hemmed up in New York. And like we talked about before, there's a lot to like about living here. I like living here. I wouldn't have been here for so long, but that I wish they would uh, just get a little more consistent and, and understandable in their laws here. I so think guys, it's coming. Getting, say that again, Kevin. Sorry to cut you off. I think it's coming. Um, for the first time in a long time, we have a Supreme Court that is friendly to the Second Amendment. There are several very interesting cases, either at the circuit level or the Supreme Court's already looking at. I'd say there's a decent chance that we'll see a lot of sweeping changes when it comes to uh, the more, call it, totalitarian approach to gun control. I hope so. That would be great. Well, guys, we're coming towards the end of the show. I want to make sure that we had enough time to allow you to promote anything that you're interested in or working on or a business you're working for, anything that you'd like our readers to know about other than the, the great primer that you've just given everybody on, on second amendment and gun rights. So Greg, we'll start with you. Anything that you're interested in promoting or talking about today on the show? Well, as uh, I think Charles knows, I currently work for an organization called code platoon. Uh, code platoon is a coding boot camp dedicated to uh, teaching people how to become a software developer. The difference with us is that we're the only coding bootcamp out there that is de dedicated solely to the military and veteran community. So our entire student body is either military members who are transitioning out and getting ready to start a career or recently separated veterans and their spouses, I should add that. Uh, and we're, we're launching numerous careers. We've got some great business partners and it's, it's working extremely well. It's a great team of people who are dedicated to giving actual employable skills to, to veterans that they can walk into a viable career with and not just, not just go to college and say, Hey, what am I going to do? But go into a 14 week boot camp and come out as a software developer who's ready to start, you know, working for some very prominent organizations at a pretty solid salary and go up from there. Absolutely. And I'm familiar with Code Platoon, Greg, and I think that, that they provide a, a very important service to the veteran community and help them become highly functional veterans after they leave the service. So I, my hat's off to you and Code Platoon. So, Kevin, over to you. Anything that you want to promote or talk about? Uh, my usual groups on hiatus, some rains washed out or washed away a range. So, uh <laughs> I think I'm good on that department for now. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, gentlemen, this was a fascinating uh, show. We covered a wide gamut of issues. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up now uh, here shortly, but I want to make sure that I, I go back to each of you in case there's alibis, anything you thought about that you want to add or any closing thoughts. And Greg, we'll start with you. Closing thoughts, alibis, or anything else you want our audience to know? Oh, well, I think, you know, again, like I said at the beginning, I, my approach is one that, yes, it's philosophical first, you know, understanding concepts of natural rights and how that applies, but also looking realistically at the world in which we live and recognizing what is what is valid, what is realistic, what is not. Um, you know, Kevin mentioned and you mentioned both a lot of these laws that are that are coming forward at the at the district level, Supreme Court level. We have to be we have to be willing to admit that 
the federalism of the past has kind of gone away. You know, the, this concept of things being decided at the state level is kind of in the past almost, and we have to address them at the federal level. As much as I'd like to say, well, you know, it's up to each individual state, I don't know that we can do that anymore, and we have to be realistic about that uh, on both sides. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're coming at that from a left perspective or a right perspective. You have to be realistic about where the national and state governments fit in today's society and not just look at an idealized past or something like that. So that, that would be my last thought is just to have a realistic look but encourage people to go and study things like natural rights. It's a complicated subject, but get deep into the weeds on that stuff if you want to be educated on this and understand what rights are and why that matters. Nice. Well said, Greg. Over to you, Kevin. Any closing thoughts? So one thing I would recommend for anyone who's uh, interested in being an advocate for uh, Second Amendment rights Look outside of your comfort zone. There are a lot of groups, uh, you're seeing a lot of groups, uh, LGBTQ groups, uh, you know, uh, minority groups that are popping up that are getting on board with this. The more people we can bring on board to attack, you know, the anti-gun side from as many different directions as possible, the better. Don't just look to the normal guys you go to the range with. You know, get out there, meet people, meet new people, meet people who don't look like you, who don't act like you, who don't think like you. The worst that can happen is you decide you don't agree with each other on politics and call it a day. That's excellent. Yeah, widening that net is a good way to, to live your life, especially uh, given the fraught political climate of our country right now. Thanks, Kev. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for, for listening to the show. Greg and Kevin, so pleased to have you. Kevin, welcome back again. I'm Charlie Faint, in for Christopher Paul Meyer. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Havoc. All individuals on the show are speaking in their private capacity and are not representative of any other organization or individual. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. funny is chris chris's project uh vet rep had a, a big event on the fourth of july and kev came up for it and i was standing out front with my sister who kathy was also affiliated with havoc and she knew kevin was coming and she and she saw kevin walking up the driveway and she said that's kevin wilson and i said that can't be kevin wilson because i don't i don't know what i expected kev but it wasn't that i expected i don't know i i thought that you were going to be small or something i guess i was like that's not kevin wilson and he walked up and it was definitely Kevin Wilson, so it was good. I'm going to feel, if we ever get together, I'm going to feel like the little guy. <laughs> well, it was great because just about every there, everyone there from Havoc was at least six foot two, six foot three. Oh, and then there was Kathy, who was like five foot Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, like Steve Lewis was there, and he's a real tall guy. And Chris is not little either. And then, and then my uh, my friend and and uh, editor of the Habit Journal, Mike Warnock, he's a big guy too. I think he's a he's a little bit shorter than me, and well, I mean, a lot shorter than Kevin because Kevin's such a monster. But uh, yeah, it was like a roving PSD for anybody that was there. All the the, the huge men from That's affiliated with the great. Habit Journal. So. That's great. I'm gonna have my own little little guy club, I guess. You know, <laughs> a, a measly five ten and what. A, it, like How the kids showed up today. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>